Was King John really, really bad? He wasn't just as bad as people thought, but he was worse. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. Hi there, I'm on about my gazillionth attempt to introduce my two guests because they, they've just done so much that it's hard to pack it into one little introduction. So today I'm, get, I'm joined by not just one, but two incredible medieval historians. So I'm joined by Dr. Sophie Ambler, who is a lecturer at the University of Lancaster in later medieval and European history. Um, she's also author of the song, uh, the book, The Song of Simon de Montfort. And my second guest is Dr. Nick Barrett. He's really well known in uh, the genealogy world for his fantastic work on family history. Uh, but you might not know, he's also a medieval historian by training. Um, and he's the author of the book, The Restless King. You'll be able to find links to all the books in the show notes below, but I hope you enjoy these fantastically knowledgeable two medieval historians. Hi, Nick and Sophie. Um, thank you for joining me today. Um, I thought I would start by showing you uh, some of the ideas I have about medieval historian history as someone who knows nothing. Um, and you could tell me how stupid I am um, or whether I've got any little nuggets correct. So if I just share my screen for a sec, I thought this would be a bit of fun. And now there we go, share screen. I'm intrigued to see what you found actually. So. Well, you know, we had copyright issues, so I'm just going to <laughs> present. <laughs> okay, can you see that okay? Yeah. So this is like my kind of standard medieval troop here. We've got Robin Hood on the left. We've got women who look amazing. Or we've got people who are peasants who normally would be covered in dirt, but I couldn't find any of those images for free. And then randomly somebody playing some sort of instrument with long sleeves. So that's that's like one take on the medieval history. That's probably summing it up, really. But um... it's a very romanticised <laughs> view, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was Robin Hood real? I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. Is Robin Hood real? Uh, I mean, it, where, do you, where do you want to begin with that one? There, there are obviously references to people called Robin Hood or Robin Hood in the pipe rolls that I've seen. Um, David Crook has investigated that in more detail. It's really interesting that during Cage Rebellion, 1450, uh, many of the leading players used um, fictionalised characters. Some of them who were brought up for prosecution were described as Oberon, King of the Fairies. And there were references to Robin Hood. So it had passed into folklore and was still being used as a sign of resistance in the sort of 15th century. But, you know, I mean, <sighs> where, do, where do you want to go with that? You know, it's no smoke without fire. I think what he represents is also tells you a lot about medieval history, doesn't it? Because um, what he represents is sort of complaint against the oppression of royal governments and sheriffs who, who rip off the poor. And there was certainly a lot of that going on in the 13th century, um, you know, under King John and under Henry III. So in that sense, there's definitely um, a, a strong grain of truth in that story. I was just going to say, is he is he like a symbol for sort of peasant rebellion? Um, is that something that was going on a lot of the time? And was King John really, really bad? <laughs> so, Sophie, do you, 
Do you want to start on that one? Yeah, I mean, John, um, so opinions have differed over the years, but we've done a lot of research in this um, over the past few years, um, and Nick's done a lot of work on, on um, John's government um, in particular. And I, my feeling is that the more work we've done, the more we realised he wasn't just as bad as people thought, but he was worse, both on a day-to-day -day basis and, and, an, and in the big um, scheme of things. So um, kind of the level of oppression and ruthlessness um, and the political killings and, um, and so on, um, as well as kind of the, the, the treatment of, of ordinary um, people in the kingdom was pretty bad, actually. Yeah. And okay. I think one of, the, one of the things there is how far he fell, given the expectation of hope at the beginning of his reign. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the chroniclers at the beginning, when he brought about peace with Philip Augustus of France at the Treaty of Le Goulet, um, were saying, finally, he's ended the vast expenditure that his brother Richard had done, money going overseas, not being spent in England. You know, sounds like Brexit, really, doesn't it? And um, there was hope. There was hope that John might be someone who could bring people together, of course, I agree. I used to go through a phase of not, not defending John. How could you defend John? But admiring some of his focus on the administrative detail. But of course, the more you look at it, it became this huge machine um, for extracting money after he'd lost most of his continental lands after 1203-4. Uh, a machine that for the first time really harnessed the power of his forebears' um, remote control government. And yeah, it was it was rapacious. It was mm. relentless and it, you know, it sucked all the silver out of the kingdom for mm. large coalitions to fight on the continent. So it's, it's, a, it's an oppressive regime, possibly one of the most oppressive, oppressive regimes in, in English history. So taking a step back then, um, what, what was the structure of government? Of, first of all, I suppose, actually, what did England look like? You know, how, how was it a united kingdom or was it, did, did it still include bits of France or what, what did it look like around that time that King John came in? Well, we should probably start with the empire and Nick's probably well, well placed to um, talk about that given his recent work. The empire, yeah, this, this vast conglomeration of lands that one family had brought together under Henry II through dynastic accident and deliberate marriage. Uh, so the kings of England, up until 1204 um, were first and foremost European rulers, a family controlling vast amounts of lands um, from the Pyrenees in the south to the borders of Scotland in the north, large part, parts of Ireland. And um, they were the overmighty subjects that were causing the French kings huge amounts of problem. Um, but of course, a lot of that was built around personality and the, the power that came with <laughs> making sure you had remote government in places where you were not. And that, I think, allowed, certainly when you, when you lose that territory, a sense of independence almost to grow up in the constituent parts. So each area saw themselves as being very separate. And it's only really historians who've brought this together. The phrase that I really don't like is the Orgevin Empire, because it wasn't an empire. And whilst it was driven from Anjou, the Normans saw themselves as the natural heirs of this, this territory. Um, so it's a really complicated thing. But you have to look at England within this geopolitical group of territories ruled by one family. And when all of this fell apart, when John succeeded the throne after his brother Richard died prematurely, uh, his personality failings, his lack of trust in others and the lack of trust in him 
brought the whole house of cards crashing down. And so you have a very different relationship between John in England and people whose families had been essentially governing semi-independently, semi-autonomously, who were forced to face with a king who was there the whole time. A little bit of King John was enough and it went a long way. If he's there in your face the whole time, it was not a pleasant experience for many people. I was going to say as well, I think within England, there were there were a lot of divisions as well, um, probably because you've got you've got you know the, the ruling um, elite like um, John and his family and you've got this this class of earls and barons so these really very powerful magnates across the land but you also have the majority of the population um, who work the land um, and a lot of those are classed as unfree so people who um, are bound in to their lords um, these great magnates by labour services and they don't know um, the famous phrases. They, they go to bed at night and don't know what they're going to be doing in the morning, um, depending on what the law demands of them. And you also see other divisions as well. I think when the big rebellion against King John erupts, um, you have this group of rebels who are sometimes referred to as the Northerners. Um, so the area in, in the Midlands and the north of England, where I am um, now uh, in, in uh, Lancaster, where... Um, they felt perhaps John's presence particularly strongly because they're more than anyone perhaps in the north they'd been allowed to kind of get on with things and here he was on their doorstep um, but they also suffered in other ways like um, they, they had large areas that were under forest law and that restricted um, what they could do and, and brought a lot of financial um, penalties so even within England you see these these kind of social and regional um, divisions as well. When we say um, unfree, I'm guess, unfree serfs, I'm guessing, what would their lives be like in, in terms of were they given coinage to go and choose their own food or were they provided food um, from somebody? How did, how did that work? Well, I suppose it's worth mentioning, I suppose, that during this period, there's only one kind of uh, currency, which is the silver penny, um, which, um, you know, I, I always learned was about one a day's wage for an unskilled labourer, um, so sort of a day's minimum wage. Um, and what what could that kind of buy, Nick? Well, I think um, we, we have to look at the fact that quite a lot of the labour we've talked about for the vast majority of the population wasn't paid. You laboured on your Lord's land, so you could have land of your own to cultivate food, which if you were lucky, you might produce an excess in a good summer or harvest that you could then start to trade up for various possessions. So without sort of oversimplifying it you still got a very local economy very little cash circulation in certain parts of that economy um, and as we see later on um, people started hoarding coins because that would help and that as a result the circulation broke down and people went back to bartering um, you've got very few large towns as you see today so you've got london which is which is much larger than most and a few regional large market towns but populations of you know eight to ten thousand maximum so most of the population is scattered around these market towns and it's all very local around where the Lord had their possessions. So, you know, paraphrasing Hobbes, life was not <laughs> nasty, brutish and short for many people. Um, plague was a regular scourge. Uh, you would have lots of malnourished children, often not making it through the first year of their life. Um, needless to say, that meant that there were real challenges in um social cohesion at times and yet and yet there's something around portraying this as a very sort of harsh way of life there was a lot of culture promoted and i think that's where you have 
things like the Luttrell Psalter, which is a fantastic depiction of some of the life of peasants, slightly later, or admittedly. But this is where, you know, thinking of medieval history in, in pop culture, um, and particularly Monty Python and some of those sketches, which obviously, as we know, Michael Jones was, was a great medieval historian and researched this and drew upon these manuscripts, which give us a sense that life was seasonal and you would work long, hard hours in the field to earn your corn in every sense. And that for some of that time, you wouldn't be getting paid. You would just be living on subsistence. And if you were lucky to get a scrap of land, you could then grow your own food as I said earlier, hopefully upsell them. But equally, you would have an opportunity if you had uh, children who wanted to apply a trade, you could get into a guild, you could then start to learn some crafts. And that's where people tended to congregate if they were lucky enough into the market towns and the emerging larger towns where you'd find more trade. Um, as things move through this period and the English wool trade gains traction, and now we're talking, you know, 14th, 15th century, many people were able to rise through the ranks um, if they could just get that toehold on the land ladder. For me, it's as much about land as it's about coin. If you get hold of land, you could grow things, you could cultivate things, you could then start to expand. And sometimes that was about having good marriages as well. So now we're talking about the knights in society, the administrative class. And one thing I will say about Henry II and John, maybe not necessarily for the lower ranks of society, they wanted to cultivate a new group of people who weren't the landed gentry, the, 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 the large um, aristocrats. They wanted to bring people through, the bureaucrats. And because they were governed remotely, they created a system of class based on merit and of opportunity, often via the church as clerics and clerks who were able to read and write. And they would then provide service in the sheriff's retinue, in the law courts, possibly in the royal court. So there was a lot of social mobility, perhaps more than we think, um, if you were in the right place at the right time and had the right sponsor. So, so why did they, you're saying they, they wanted to, um, to encourage this progression, why did they want to do that? Why did they want to invest in, in helping people to progress to, to um, more skilled work and, and, you know, bureaucratic work by the sounds of it, administrative work? I don't think it was, out of, it was out of no sense of altruism for I, the benefits of the world people, <laughs> but it was in their own interests. Um, there, there was a constant tension pretty much since the Norman Conquest in 1066 around creating an aristocracy you could trust who would do some of that local government to take on these really important positions so that royal power could be exercised, sheriffs in particular, but also some of the bailiffs of the royal land and creating people with their own estates, who'd have their own administrations, who essentially were, you know, semi-independent. There was always this sort of tension between the major families and the crown, particularly as the major families held power, um, often for providing service to the king, like we've seen lower down, military service in particular, so financial service as well. And every time someone died, there was always that threat that the king might dispossess the family. And as we see with some of the civil wars, particularly in the reign of King Stephen, after the death of Henry I in 1135, you know, there was, there was huge conflict and there was that fragility. So the king needed these large families to govern, but they were often a very tense set of relationships. So building up a class of folk who would create a different mechanism, a different way of engaging with people, perhaps lower down the social uh, spectrum, but also 
taking power out of some of these local areas was really key. And that was some of the big reforms that Henry II attempted, a common law for all rather than baronial courts outside of royal jurisdiction and having people who would staff them and work them was really key. Having a different set of royal officials who that they could trust, not necessarily the aristocrats who may or may not do what the king did. So it's all part of redressing that balance of power that grew up after 1066. I think as well with the other kind of element of society that we, we have to bring in here is the church, which was um, an incredibly um, important part of people's lives and a very powerful force across, across Christendom. So we're talking not only here about the Pope and his hierarchy across Europe of archbishops and bishops who ruled these huge dioceses in England, so had a lot of influence um, within different parts of, of the country, but also all the people in diocesan administration and ordinary priests and clerks who would have made up quite a substantial part of the population, as well as the monasteries. And the monasteries were huge landholders um, in, in, across Christendom. So if you think of some of the great, you know, sort of uh, famous abbeys and, um, and priories that, that survived today in ruins um, in England, these would have been some of the most powerful forces locally and nationally, they would have had a lot of, um, they would have had patronage from, from the nobility, but they also would have um, uh, uh, had the, the sort of wider um, spectrum of society below them serving on their estates. So um, as well as um, ministering to the souls of, of the population, um, the church would have also been a major sort of economic and political player nationally and, and internationally. And it, it was very much integrated in all sorts of ways um, in, into society between the nobility and, and um, people of lower status and the king as well. And going back to what we were saying about the, the situation of people um, on the lowest rungs of society and, and those people who were on the breadline, as it were, it would have been the responsibility of, of, of the church and the monasteries, but also the great nobles of the time to provide arms and food um, whenever they could. So King Henry III of England, for instance, who's King John's son, you know, he's sometimes providing um, food on a daily basis for hundreds and on big occasions, many, many, many thousands um, of poor people um, for, for sort of the um, benefit of his soul and the souls of his family and ancestors and because of this Christian duty um, to provide for the poor. And you also see that that influence of the church um, shaping politics at various points. So um, probably not a lot of that gets into some of the attitudes towards people lower down in society in Magna Carta in 1215. They're very much kind of kept down by the great barons. But by the time you get to the 1250s and 1260s, where we see this new wave of, of revolution led by Simon de Montfort, there's very much a feeling that's, that, that's inspired by um, ideas in the church that there's an obligation to look after your tenants um, and people lower down society no matter um, what um, you're obliged to do legally but what you should do. I mean, I'm guessing presumably um, these unfree serfs when they when they weren't being treated particularly well or when they they were starving presumably they didn't just sit around going oh well that's that's tough that's my lot in life presumably there were lots of different uprisings Probably not as many as we might think, because they were usually repressed very brutally locally. Okay. But also when you think of an uprising, you think of organisation and communication. And it's probably more extraordinary that they happened at all, given the lack of that 
coordination communication literacy levels for example you know there's probably one major one per century um, but quite a lot of the revolts that we see are led by a more educated elite you know and the, okay particularly when it starts to move into almost about revolutionary territory but you know that the peasants revolt is is the main one that people talk about at the end of the 14th century mm-hmm. and that is where you had a whole range of factors coming together but even then some of the early originators uh, were talking around some of the ideas um, of change and had looked at some of the legal impositions statute of laborers for example which restricted freedom of movement at a time when it was in many ways a laborer's market the black death had come and taken away large parts of the population so people were moving from land which they had been tied to into areas that were prepared to pay more and this was the government's attempt to stop that and that's probably the, the first major mass movement um, as opposed to you know local discontent or uprising and it's fair to say, you know, it, it wasn't just the, the laity that would suppress these as well. It was in the interests of the clergy as well with their large estates. Um, but there's a really interesting and really detailed set of records, which I think bring quite a lot of this together. And um, it's the Bishop, Bishop of Winchester's accounts, uh, their pipe rolls, their audit methods. And there you get every single aspect of life, um, the expenditure on the local manors, some of the arms that are then instructed to the stewards to then distribute at a local level this was what people did and when you think that there's obviously no national health service quite a lot of that was provided through the monasteries and the the moral and the religious duty to look after one another and when it breaks down then everyone suffered i think 13th century is really key in this in many ways um so in that kind of politicization of, of the peasantry, if we can call it that. So the first time we can really show real kind of political awareness and involvement in those national revolts or, or, or revolutions is, is in that period um, in the 1250s and 1260s. And, and that's partly because um, that the revolutionary government of the day had to reach out to the broader population in a new way to get some kind of legitimacy. Kings didn't necessarily have to do that because they had all the the legitimacy they wanted. Um, so you get reports of um, people, you know, amongst the lowest ranks of society um, in in the 1260s, um, joining the um, uh, the revolution um, led by Simon de Montfort, and, and some of it under their own steam, some of it under um, under orders, but a lot of it um, showing evidence that people are aware what the issues are um, and what they're arguing for. But also, I think. Um, what, what really helps that, that change, um, going back to what Nick said about communication and how important that is if, if you do, um, if, if you are gonna have a, a large scale movement um, was again, the church. So one of the really important jobs that the church took on in the 13th century was the publication of Magna Carta. So um, the bishops and priests took it upon themselves to, to read out Magna Carta to make sure everybody knew its terms because they were charged with, with um, enforcing it by um, church sanctions. So the charter would have been read out you know, in, in parish churches and in marketplaces. So people would have had an awareness of what was being guaranteed to them supposedly by the powers that be. So you can see that kind of communication network and awareness growing over the 13th century. You mentioned Simon de Montfort. Could you tell me a bit about who he was and why he's so important? 
Well, he was born um, in the early 1200s in um, northern France, and he was the son of a very famous crusader by the same name, Simon de Montfort the Elder, who led the Albigensian Crusade. Um, but the family had a, a claim to the Earldom of Leicester. Um, so Simon the Younger um, came to England in the, in the 1230s and um, took up his Earldom and made a life for himself in England. He married the king's sister, um, went on crusade. Um, but he has a quite a tumultuous relationship with his king, Henry III, and, and brother-in-law. Um, but he ended up in, in um, after 1258, um, being the leader of this party that, that seized power um, from the king, um, from Henry III, um, set up a council to govern England in place of the king with the help of parliament. And he's, he's probably particularly famous today um, for his association with Parliament because of, of this insistence that Parliament ha should happen three times a year, no matter what, not just when the King wants it, but, but um, it should be absolutely integral to running the Kingdom. So um, he, he led this movement in um, the late 1250s um, and early 1260s, ended up in a battle against King Henry III at Lewis in 1264 and won a, a spectacular victory. Um, he turned the whole thing into a crusade, into a holy war for this political cause. So he was seen by some as this great sort of um, uh, semi-spiritual religious leader, as much as a, a politician. Um, but he also had a you know a much a much darker side as well. So he brought all this kind of violence and destruction to the kingdom. Um, several hundred Jewish people were killed during the course um, of the revolt by his men, um, and then it all came to a head in 1265 at the Battle of Evesham where um, he and his men were um, cut down in, in very nasty fashion by um, Prince Edward, the future Edward I, Henry III's son. And um, that, was, that was an end to that um, revolutionary period. You mentioned there about the massacre of the Jewish people was, you know, I tend to think of medieval England as being Christian through and through. Um, is, that, is that accurate? Was it more multicultural than we think, or was it quite secular? Well, I think um, the, the sort of the, the Jewish history of England is a really important part, both of its political history, its economic history, but also of its social um, and religious history. Um, so there have been Jewish populations across England um, since um, the wake of, of the Norman Conquest. And um, there were particularly big centres in, in, in Norwich, for instance, of course, in London um, and in other places. Um, so these were centres of, um, of learning and um, Jewish culture and um, as well as um, uh, important um, uh, financial centres because um, elements of the Jewish um, population did have a big part in, in um, money lending and financing. Um, people at um, particularly sort of the middling levels of society. So there was resentment um, against them, partly because of that, but also um, because of um, sort of anti-Semitism. And again, the 13th century is, is quite key here because you, what you see is firstly, the, um, the financial exploitation of the Jewish population by England's kings on a, on a whole new scale. Um, England's Jews were considered crown property, um, which meant the king could tax them at will. Um, and kings did that more and more and more, King John and, and then Henry III. Um, Henry III also set out to, to convert um, 
uh, many of England's Jewish population as well. Um, he, he got their resources when he did that. So that was another incentive. So that by the end of Henry III's reign, the population had been um, whittled down um, to, to a fraction of its former size, either because people had um, converted to, to Christianity, perhaps to avoid you know, financial devastation, um, the, the, the communities had been taxed into ruin. There had been particular um, violent attacks like that under the, the Montfortian regime. So that by the time that Edward I came to power, it was relatively easy and, and politically expedient for him um, to announce the, the expulsion of, of um, Jewish people from England. Um, so, so Jewish history, I think, ties into so many different parts of, of, of England's story in this period. It's really interesting that, you know, what, three, four centuries later when when Shakespeare's writing Merchant of Venice, that whole that whole money lending and that prejudice against it is still there. When we think about the 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 faith of people, the Christian faith, you know, how different would that look to, you know, church today? Um, I'm presuming it was a lot stricter. Um, I think I was reading something that said that, you know, technically you could only have sex about seven times a year um, if you were to follow the, 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 the lessons, you know, by the rule book. Um, how, how accurate is that? Or is that a, a pop culture myth? I think technically there might have been various restrictions on when people couldn't, couldn't have sex. But if you trace all the birthdays of different <laughs> you'd probably find a slightly different, a different story. Um, I think it is, it is a different faith to what many people particularly in England today might be familiar with but it um, depends on your perspective so it's um, it's Catholicism and it's also um, let's say a, a pre mid 20th century Catholicism and perhaps some of the most important elements of that that, that differ from, from our culture today um, I suppose it's not necessarily just belief in God, which many people today, even if they don't, they're not part of an organized religion, might, might say they believe in God. Um, but also kind of the pattern of the year with feast days and, and, and holy days um, with mass, um, but also things like attitude towards the dead. So in, in the Middle Ages, as you know, in, in um, Catholicism um, today, there's a very strong relationship between the living and the dead and the living have an obligation to pray for the dead and the dead um, from, from their um, uh, position um, of, of authority kind of uh, in, in heaven, um, hopefully eventually um, have an obligation to, to look after um, the living as well. So um, that ties so much of what we see in, in medieval culture, whether it's um, kind of the obligation to um, give money or land or pray to pray for the benefit of people's souls, um, through to it, you know it affects everything from from patronage to to to, to um uh to, to the church to law to people's ordinary patterns of life it's completely imbued within um society in a way that perhaps is not familiar to to many sort of um uh people today who, do, who don't follow that kind of um organized faith i mean that's not to say that everybody strictly believed everything all of the time no, in the yeah. same way um, so um, that's that's not the case, but it, it's a sort of a community, um, a community religion. And I think it's really shown in the fact that church and state were just that. These were the only two shows in town in many ways. And the church controlled individuals relationship with God. 
through services as you said the beast day we pivot around christmas and easter but there were lots more of these that people would observe but also heresy would be stamped out quite vigorously you know simon de montford the elder was only one of a number of examples of um, crusades holy wars against one's own population because they dared to believe or practice a different form of worship so it was a fairly tight control so with the patronage and with the arms and support comes an adherence to the faith, reinforcing these two pillars of society, church and state. And why we tell anyone that steps outside of those boundaries. Yeah, and going back to the Crusades, I think that's, it's, I suppose, important to remember, it's a militant faith. So um, the kind of aggressive side of it, so not only against enemies within heretics, but enemies without, and particularly the abode of Islam, it's absolutely fundamental to um, kind of the, the fabric of, of Christianity in medieval England and, and across Europe. So um, I think we can't see crusades as something that happens, you know, over there in the other, on the other side of the world. They're absolutely tied into what people believed back home. And those people who weren't actually off fighting um, against um, the abode of Islam were, were praying for success or financing that so um, it was an entire kind of obligation of the population to support the kind of the militant side um, of the faith. And it comes back to the earlier point, you know, you said, what was England like? Well, for many people, their focus was elsewhere anyway, drawn towards Jerusalem or Rome, where the Pope was. You know, this was the centre of gravity for the medieval world, um, both princes and rulers, as well as uh, folk in the shires on the ground. When you say military, um, who made up that military? How, how did you become a soldier in medieval times? <sighs> was there much choice or was it, you know, was it like the militia or like, how did it work? Yeah, I mean, there, there are lots of ways that you could end up in, in, in the military. Um, some of this goes back to the feudal obligation that we talked about earlier. So when William uh, invaded and took over the government of England by killing Harold, um, he imposed a very militaristic state that the Normans had created themselves coming from Viking descent and brought within the sense of feudalism, where land was apportioned according to um, the amount of soldiers you could raise from the population to serve for 40 days. And that was the basic structure of English society. Obviously, it softens. And as we talked about already, you've got laws and different relationships building. But there was an expectation that all of the tenants in chief, all of those holding land directly from the crown, would provide a standing army on demand for 40 days a year. And obviously that wasn't particularly helpful because a lot of the folk had been drawn from fields and weren't necessarily trained. And so a lot of that was commuted into fixed payments, scootage or shield tax, which could be used to hire mercenaries. So we talked also about being tied to the land, but other people would perhaps go off or get training, different ranks of society, the knightly class, you know, we talk about knights in shining armour, but this was in many ways the crossover between an administrative class of people, particularly in terms of peace, but also people who were expected to train and fight. And you would have the court itinerating with the crown, which would also be staffed with household troops, who again would be trained. And this takes you into tournaments, and the sense that there is this sort of European tournament, I think, you know, football champions league only playing out in, in stage battlefields um, across large parts of the continent based on chivalry. So there's, 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 there's culture and code behind warfare as well. Um, some of it staged, some of it obviously territorial and real. 
So there are different ways in, but the, the, the means of recruitment would change over time. And there's some, there's some really great and detailed records about how uh, soldiers would be recruited and hired by both means, by indenture, so an agreed period that you would serve and payment would come through, or through some of these old forms of feudal tenure, which gradually tied out. And you, you can see this big shift in the, um, as Nick was alluding to, in the 14th century and the 15th century, where we get these indentures, these contracts um, for service in the army. And this has been one of the big areas of research over the past few years, led, led particularly um, at the University of Southampton by Anne Curry, where you can trace these armies of the English kings in the Hundred Years' War through these contracts. And you can actually see how many people are being recruited for each campaign. You can see what they were paid. You can see a lot of their names. Um, and you can also see the shift that takes place between um, the kind of the armies that were um, made up mainly of, of knights of kind of the, the, the military um, and social elite towards the armies that were made up um, predominantly sort of three to one um, by archers, by lower status um, troops who became incredibly important in the campaigns of the Hundred Years' War. Um, so all of that information is, is available to us and allows us to, to sort of see that change in how people got to become soldiers or how, how they came to serve, but tracing their careers in some cases, seeing what conditions were like for them. Um, and this is set out um, for anyone who's interested um, and also in, in, in tracing perhaps if they wanted to see um, uh, their kind of local or, or, or family roots um, in the medieval soldier database, um, where a lot of these names are, are, are gathered. You both mentioned um, the, the sources there, and I, I find that quite interesting because um, medieval history is sometimes, or the period is sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages, and I know that's a really unpopular term amongst medieval historians. Um, and I, I got the impression that that was because, not because people were uncultured or that they weren't um, looking at arts and, and, and that kind of thing, but as in there just weren't as many records and there was this dark patch. Did you, could you tell me why it developed that nickname and why it's not accurate? Well, it's probably not accurate because apart from anything else, it, it covers an earlier period when okay. there genuinely were fewer records. When you get to the medieval period, uh, you've got a, a, a really wide and vibrant range of resources, certainly for people, people like me who love delving into records of the exchequer, the uh, accounting machinery for the crown. There's almost too much because you get the sort of explosion of bureaucracy in the 12th century, driven by the crown in many ways looking at new ways of interacting with local officials and extracting revenue and granting land and making appointments. So you've got the central writing office of the Crown, the Chancery, creating enrolments, so copies of the material that they're sending out, these instructions. You're also getting petitions coming back in from the locality. So you've got this birth of bureaucracy uh, from the 12th century onwards. Um, but that's only one part of the communication structure that you've got. I and mean, there's fantastic work. You know, we talked about arts and culture going on in all walks of life, but particularly driven by the church. And um, we also know, but it's harder to find the evidence for, that there were private correspondence networks. And there's been some great work done on some of the families that were communicating with each other in personal letters as well as the formal production of manuscripts or incunabular books. So these are effectively, you know, handwritten, but mass produced um, pseudo printed uh, books as you start to get into the 15th century. Um, but, you know, chronicles, I love chronicles. And, you know, I think, you know, so we both use them in our work in different ways. People like Matthew Paris, 
who often kept two copies of his work, one that could be produced for the king or the royal officials as they would come to visit, which were relatively complimentary, and then the more acerbic and honest versions, picking up local gossip and news and writing them down, often rehearsing previous recitals of events from the past that chronicled the story of the area of the monastic house, but also some of the big events. And there were lots of conflicts in those stories, as you'd expect, um, in the way you find you know three people talking about an event might have different impressions. So the historian has to wade through this material, but it is skewed very much towards the bureaucratic and also the elite. And I think that's the big difference with some of the work that you know we've done around family history. You don't tend to get the survival of records that tell you what you know the folk in the fields were thinking or doing, unless they fall foul of some of these um, bureaucratic machines. But what, of course, this excludes are the voices of the people working in the fields. They don't have a voice. They don't have a say. You might get a few families, but even they have to be of an educated elite. And it's only really when you get people caught up in the machinery of government that you start to hear their voices, particularly, you know, some of the protest movements we've talked about. Uh, Cade's Revolt, 1450, when some of the um, settlers or invaders had been booted out of Normandy by the French and we're coming back and trying to settle again in the local communities. And this popular uprising against the way Henry VI was conducting his government led to people from all walks of life protesting. And in the aftermath, when they were rounded up, they stood trial and we hear their voices. So these are lower ranks of society. And it's often the way it is, isn't it, when we do genealogy, that it's often when people interact, often through uh, criminality or court cases, that we hear their side of the story or their motivations. And there is some of this around. Um, similarly, with both the chronicle accounts of the Peasants' Revolt, but some of those um, post-revolt mop-up operations that the Crown used to do, you find them in the court records. And I think we can add to this as well. Why is this not the Dark Ages or, or, or why is there so much more going on in the medieval period is, is the sort of um, scientific and um, scholarly learning that was going on as well. I mean, this is, this is going on across, um, um, across the world throughout the Middle Ages, but you know, in the period that, that we're focusing on here, you can see the growth of the big universities at Paris, at Oxford and elsewhere. You can see the amazing centers of scholarship that built up. So um, one of the big influencing factors in politics in England in, in the early 1200s was um, the new debates that were emerging through academic work in Paris with um, through Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a big scholar working on, you know, political ethics and sort of moral dilemmas and, and what should people do, including what should kings do in certain situations. And you can see um, particularly in the work of some leading scholars in England in the 13th century, the amazing scientific research that was being done. So um, I've worked um, quite a bit on Robert Grostest, who was, who was Bishop of Lincoln between 1235 and 1253, who did, you know, did mathematics and astronomy and philosophy and theology and medicine and everything else. And he, he was working he was doing research on optics, you know, sort of the study of light and, and came up with this theory about the beginning of the universe, um, as well as being a sort of active politician and pastor. And he was someone who came from probably, as far as we know, the lowest ranks of society and rose up through society through his learning and going back to that idea of social mobility. So social mobility through education and learning and, and talent was, was possible in that way. And um, I defy anyone who, who reads his political, religious, scientific work to, to think that, 
you know, um, this was a, a period of low, low culture and learning. You mentioned medicine there. What, what kind of medical knowledge did people have? I think it comes back to the way people would practice what they found out and passed down through families. So we think of herb law. Um, some of this links into the way the monastic communities set themselves up as places of hospitality and hospitals, the looking after the sick and caring for them, um, drawn often from their herb gardens that they would they would work and tend because of the experience that had been passed down through the ages. Books on herb law and medicine, um, some practices worked, others didn't. Um, it wasn't as though there was a lack of medical knowledge, but it wasn't what I would call centralised in the way that we know today. And a lot of this was local custom and practice outside of monasteries. So you know, this it's rather you know terrible and lazy depiction of you know witches and um, spells and crafts. A lot of this was actually people who had accumulated wisdom and were practicing in the local area to help others. Mm. So there's there's a, there's a sort of really interesting network there that was developing. And I think as well. Um, you've also got to think of areas like battlefield medicine perhaps as being being a, a big area of, of expertise and knowledge so if you look um, at those periods like the hundred years war when there are always always seem to be armies on campaign that kind of skill would have been in demand and if you think of sort of the, the famous cases of people like um, Henry V as, as a young man um, needing medical attention to have an arrow extracted um, from, from, from his face um, and what kind of skills that required. Um, there were all these different sorts of specialisms um, available as, as well. But obviously it didn't always go well. I was thinking a bit earlier, Richard I taking an arrow in the shoulder after a bit of um, bravado that went wrong and they hacked around in the candlelight and of course it went gangrenous and he died. So it wasn't as though the, the, the wealthy and elite had any better access to medical attention and that worked well. You know, the fact that you'd have a surgeon or surgeon associated with um, officer class in quite a lot of these armies was I think testimony to just how important it was and this evolving um, branch of medical practice but I think there's also something around this period particularly and ironically engagement with um, cultures that came from the south in places that had resurrected ancient Arabic texts flowing through particularly in parts of Spain up into France and then into England you know Henry II uh, was tutored in a whole range of the arts and sciences and these texts were being rediscovered from Roman times through um, Arabic scholars uh, scholarship centres too and so we talk about crusades as being you know battlefields and ideological clashes which of course they were but there was also some knowledge exchange as well and a, and a sharing of cultural ideas. Okay. The, the medieval period is obviously much more complex and vibrant than um, the, the we might believe if we've just grown up watching uh, Robin Hood and Maid Marian <laughs> um, on the BBC. Um, what would you, could you give any advice on somebody who, who wants to start learning about the medieval period, um, where to start? Because it's such a long period of time as well. It's, it can be quite, I think, intimidating. Um, have you got any advice? Other than read our books. <laughs> yeah, other than read your books, but well, that's a given, you know, <laughs> that's a given. Um, there are some fantastic podcasts as well, I think more and more that have been produced um, in recent months. So um, the BBC's In Our Time is a good place to start on some of those things like the Crusades and, um, and you know, Magna Carta and all those sorts of things. But also 
Um, the BBC History podcast series has got a wealth of medieval-focused um, episodes now, and, and they cover all aspects of life, whether it's the high politics or the church or, um, or society um, or medieval health and medicine. Um, so they give a fantastic introduction to all sorts of topics like this. Thank you. I know that, Nick, you've got to run for, a, for another meeting. So I just want to say thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. Thanks to... Thanks for setting this up. It's been great to talk about medieval history. It was fun. Good. It should be fun. Medieval history is fun. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.